welcome to part two of the Best Life, Best Death podcast with Dr. Chris Kerr. Dr. Kerr is part of the team at Hospice and Palliative Care Buffalo, and you can find out more about that organization at hospicebuffalo.com. You can find out more about Dr. Kerr at drchristopherkerr.com. In part two, Dr. Kerr and I talk about hospice, the origins and the big organization that he works for and why he thinks hospice is plays such a key role for people at the end of life. We talk about what patients need to know and what families have to gain by knowing more about hospice before they need to know. Thanks so much for joining us. And here's Dr. Kerr. Welcome again, Dr. Kerr. Thank you. So today, um, in the first part of our podcast conversation, we talked a lot about the end-of-life experience research that Dr. Kerr and his team have spent 10 years uh, doing and talking to over 1,600 patients and families about their end-of-life experiences. And I just think it's such a rich, rich topic that we'll probably touch on in this half as well. But I wanted to ask Dr. Kerr more about kind of the history of hospice and palliative care Buffalo, because they're one of the largest and very active hospices in the country. Um, so yeah, take it from there. What would you tell us about that? Oh, it's a, it's a great story. So, so, so uh, hospice is at its best um, when, it, when it evolves from its grassroots origin, right? So hospice was a, didn't grow out of our academic institutions. It didn't grow out of our government programs, actually. It grew out of a perceived need from the community. Um, and we still have one of those organically growing hospices. And how we got here is kind of fascinating. So if Dom Cicely Saunders, who's regarded as the founder of the hospice movement, she was based in London. And her first transatlantic trip was to give a lecture at Yale at the School of Nursing. She was a nurse social worker, then became a doctor. Um, and in the audience were, were a married doctor-wife couple who were from Buffalo. And so they end up leaving uh, Connecticut and leaving Yale, coming back to Buffalo and um, putting together this effort. Before, so we started before there was a benefit. So a lot of people don't know that hospice was, was truly volunteer community growing and it had nothing to do with any reimbursement mechanism. So that meant that means that places like us, our origins are heavily rooted and we work for and are so you know, really owned by the community in which we grew. Um, and so that's what kind of happened. We were just, it was literally London to New Haven to us. So we became, I think, the 10th or 11th hospice. And that did a number of things. We were pre-benefit and we were above a paint store. And um, the, the folks, that energy of advocacy and causal fight um, is a big part of who we are. The willingness to go into areas uh, to advance our cause, the pillars, the mission pillars of educating, disseminating information and sharing like our research. Um, so we did a lot of things that were very novel and new. We had the, we had the first freestanding inpatient unit um, in the country, um, you know, another thousands. We were probably the first in 76 or 78 to develop, put a palliative care unit in a hospital. Now about 80% of hospitals of any size has in palliative care in service. 
We have a very large pediatric program, which is unusual, a research department. We were very well known for our bereavement service. So we were at that front edge. And actually, the, our, our CEO ran the national organization, Don Schumacher, for a very long time. So it, that's, that's the yeah, really, it's, it's really the roots of hospice in our country. It really is. Yeah, it kind of mirrors the larger story, right? And um, and it still holds true. And fortunately, we're in a state where it's a certificate of need. So you go to a Chicago, for example, and, and it's it, it's in the for-profit sector as, as well. So there's 80 hospices. And what you have automatically is a... Um, is a uh, is a uh, is an issue of quality and competition and um, et cetera. Et cetera. Just a wide range. One one might be terrific and one might be so so, or they have their different strengths and weaknesses, but not this consistent service. Well, and the problem you get you get into, and this is just reality, is is if you're there are certain things that the um, that you'll see on the for profit side that they do very well. They develop efficiencies and everything. But if you're if you're working for a margin, what can happen is you um, you 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 re- can reduce it to its its common denominator. You you know the extra thing. So we have an expansive ex- expressive therapies service um, that there's no reimbursement for. We have an abundance of physicians. There's no real that's not baked into the benefit. Um, so I think what those of us on our side of the fence have allowed to do is uh, our sole goal and end measure has been the richness and quality of the service delivered and, you know, being baked in the community, being not for profit, having a strong foundation has allowed us to have that singular focus. Absolutely. Absolutely. How, how uh, do you know the numbers? I mean, how many staff and how many patients off the top of your head? Yeah, we serve about 1,200 people a day. We have about 450 staff, um, but you know we're in a small, we're a city of a million, um, so yeah. it's it's we serve a lot of the folks on a relative basis. Sure. Yeah. And serve, I assume, outlying areas quite significantly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Although rural access has always been a problem, hospice has has not uh, has had a struggle um, in in reaching underserved minorities rurally placed folks so it's it's we have the same struggles as everybody else is that a is that a um those uh, populations understanding the services they could get or is it uh, what's what's the rub of not having access do you think oh i think it'd be easier to find the holy grail than solve it's a it's a it's it's a complicated equation um that that uh that there's certainly issues of access um you know i you question the quality of services some folks are are getting and whether their caregivers the the the, the medical caregivers are are actually uh referring or helping in transition mm-hmm. uh, there's a feeling understandably that this is um they're being denied something to get into hospice, and these are groups that have historically been denied access and uh, and the full richness of a of a rich healthcare system. So I think there's some underlying cultural um, uh, suspicions um, that, that that are not invalid. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the better question is, you know, what are we doing about it? And 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 looking around the country, 
because some are doing it better than others. Um, we've certainly invested. It's not been a lack of willingness, um, but our success in changing those numbers um, hasn't been there. It's out of, been out of our reach. So, yeah. With, with Buffalo really being kind of this model and this early, like ground up, very carefully built system and big successful system, I mean, what are the key pieces that other parts of the country could take from that and learn? You know, um, I, 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 think, I think what's the reality is um, that, that as, as the regulatory demands have increased and the reimbursement relative to those demands has changed, it's undeniable that it's, it costs more um, to do this. We're getting reimbursed less for doing more. So how do you preserve your, your quality? How do you protect the clinician's time? Some of it's just the realities of healthcare. So things like EMRs have disproportionately pulled away from the bedside. What's an EMR? Sorry, electronic medical record. Ah, uh, yes, yes. So they've just pulled people in. A so basically what ends up, in the end, you end up being highly regulatory compliant, but what have you done to actually protect the clinician's role at the bedside? And do you right, really- Right, because the clinician is so busy filling do you out really, the Yeah, do you really want your chaplain having existential conversations with a dying patient while typing on a computer? Right. So it, it, we don't fit too well in, in a lot of the healthcare, our-, our, our, our We've lived in this utopic healthcare situation where we've what we've done is honor the relationship, not the unit of time worked and the productivity. But you're forced to kind of deal right with 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 some of these demands. Um, honestly, I think that to make the difference up, having a strong foundation, arguing the cause in your community behind us. So a lot of what we're doing is because we've been successful at translating the goodwill in our community to also support for our foundation. So we actually lose money on the operation side, um, but we do so at the, at, at the, in the goal of preserving our quality and we sustain ourselves by asking our community to circle back. Got so it. again, it's that, it's that inner de dependency. Yeah, mm -hmm. you kind of let the good work carry you. And I, I, it's it sounds um, ethereal, but it's 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 actually works out. Yeah, I can see that. So the community has to sort of support financially in a different way, and people yeah. do, people who can do so. Yeah, yeah. What what do you wish patients knew about hospice? What what do you wish patients and families realized? You know. <laughs> It's, that's a great question, and I would have answered it differently uh, 10, 20 years ago. So I think the hospice movement spend, has spent the majority of its evolutionary time in this country um, arguing for earlier referral and um, having the conversation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But if you actually look at the hospice movement, we haven't budged the length to stay. And what is that? Not very much. Not very oh, much. A week or two. A third, a third is less than a week right. uh, for us. So basically, it's a, it's a spectacular model of care, unrivaled. It's the richest benefit in healthcare. It works. You live longer. Satisfaction scores are off the charts. You're caring for the family for 13 months, et cetera. The case argument for why hospice is additive to one's life when they need 
help is just abundantly clear. Yeah. Hospice though has to recognize that it has it has limited its access and and it, it doesn't it, it's a great biocare, but for too too few for too short a time. So I think what's incumbent upon hospice is to uh, creatively get outside of the constraints of the hospice benefit um, and offer other offerings because the hospice, hospice benefit is predicated on a couple of things. It's predicated on a diagnosis of six months or less and prognostication doctors have never done particularly well. It's, it's predicated on an open and honest conversation which is harder to get these days, particularly in a fragmented system of care. And it requires you to give up things to get something. So you part of, you're inadvertently part of fragmenting an already fragmented healthcare system, where outside of hospice palliative care um, is additive. So it's, it's symbiotic with ongoing treatment. You don't necessarily have to have a firm prognosis. You just have to have need. Um, you don't have to give up um, treatment. You don't have to wait for any given doctor to tell somebody, hey, guess what? Um, you know, doctors are off prognosticating by a factor of two to three. So if your program is built on that prediction, you're, you're kind of screwed at the gate. So you can't, you can't do it. So to do these outside palliative care modalities, though, there isn't the economic basis for it. So you have to, in a value-based healthcare, there's ever more opportunities. So in a system that, met, that measures outcomes, not volumes. Mm -hmm. So it becomes, in other words, you're a doctor, you're not paid more for repeatedly treating, testing, da, da, da. but on how many times did that person go to the hospital in crisis or an ER visit? So doing better care where people live with their disease, which is in their home, preventative rather than crisis managing people with complex needs and disease states. So all of those things, um, what's actually happened, palliative care is a rarity in healthcare and that improves quality and it saves money. And the new margin is cost avoidance because the sickest 5% of Medicare patients cost you consume 50% of the dollar. Yeah. So what's interesting from, for me is, I know this sounds a little wonky, but palliative care has gone from a cause, a nice to do, that's good of you, to now it, it's, it's, it's a, a necessary thing for to control costs, improve quality and satisfaction. Right. I mean, that's what's powerful. It is improved cost and improved satisfaction. The it's, only thing analogous to it is preventative medicine. Yeah. 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 That's, yeah, that's what put. And the way <laughs> I think, I think of this as preventative medicine for really sick people. Right. Right. Well put. It seems like, uh, you know, as a, as a society, we're sort of swimming upstream against um, both doctors and the medical fields comfort level with saying, I can't fix you anymore. And then also families and um, people with illness or age or whatever the longer trajectory of a dying person is with them saying, I haven't just failed by calling palliative care or hospice. So it's this interesting kind of um, bias against these measures that actually are cost saving and life improving. Yeah. I mean, and, 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 and you, no, you live longer. Right. Right. Uh, 
those studies are really clear. Basically, what determines outcome, not only quality of life with bad disease, but also whether when you die is not just um, that your tumor gets radiated, but is your nausea controlled? Are you sleeping well? Do you have the practical need things and support? You can, can stay in your home. So all of those things contribute to not only better life, but longer life. People can comply better with treatment right. if their symptoms aren't managed. I, bet, um, I, I know you yeah. referenced um, Being Mortal, and, um, and I love that book as well, um, Atul Gawande. And the section where he particularly talks about this one town in like upper Minnesota, I think it was. And he says, the doctors all got together and decided that they would talk to their patients. Every time somebody came in, they would bring up end of life and get people talking. And the fact of the matter was their costs went down and people's quality of life went up. And I just found that completely fascinating. That conversation had such a big impact because at some point it is the human experience and the medical is just a piece of it. Yeah, well, in, you know, it's 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 honestly um, things like DNR in some ways have um, it self amused people into thinking they were having meaningful conversations around, but 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 honestly, those are transactional, and um, I, I, I give you an interesting scenario. So we have an upstream hospice program, and the most effective way to get somebody into a hospice program from my observations is allowing social workers and nurses to go into the home, know the family, know the situation and develop a relationship. Conversations around dying were not meant to be episodic one-off, so you're clicking off a chart requirement. I come to you and say, hey, if your heart stops, you want us to start it again. Um, you're going to say yes. If I say, you know, you got a probably a 3% chance given your disease and you do half of the time, you may come out and you'd be brain damaged. What do you think? And that can, and we said, well, you know, give some information, come back and it's an ongoing narrative. Um, that's very different. And so we've made this so transactional and so uh, more about, you know, information gathering data gathering um, and EMR dictated. And, uh, yeah, no, it's when it's, really it's those relationships, as you said, when the social workers and the nurses are in the home and have a read on the situation, that relationship can have that ongoing conversation. Well, there, there, there's cl and clinical trust and authenticity. And um, those are important requirements when you're talking about what to do with your life. So, yeah, you know. you've developed a, a large um, at home uh, program for both children and adults. Do, what yeah. would you say about how that began to be developed? It, it, it was really interesting. It was a rarity in healthcare and that it was started by an insurance company as the right thing to do, which was how to support elders better. Wow. Um, and we were all in favor because we thought it was, we needed an option other than hospice. We were thinking young people with children who probably need hospice, but aren't going to go there. And what we were shocked to find was that so to answer your question, insurance companies actually pay us to provide the service. It doesn't make money, but it carries the program. What we found was that um, a lot of those people really were hospice. And when you allow the, us to be present in your home in a relationship and trust to emerge and honesty, and the nurses are connecting the dots from all the involved doctors and a true picture is being painted, patients elected to go into hospice much earlier. So it, it, it was, it was, it was really, it's been an unexpected, fascinating outcome 
But if you just view it from the human dynamic, it kind of makes some sense, which is, you know, you invest in people's time to get to know one another. You're transparent. Um, you know, you don't have an agenda other than, than hopefully the truth. And then you're also gathering from them what are their wishes and wants. And it's remarkable to find out how many people are complying with treatment um, because they think that's the choice that they need to make rather than being listened to, which might be something totally different. Might be totally different. Do you, do you find our end of life doulas or death doulas, is that um, a phrase or people who are coming through your doors these days? You hear of it. We don't have a huge presence in, in, in the town. Um, I know we have programs that are existing and I hear really good things. Um, I think what kind of happened is COVID interrupted a lot of the progress we were hoping for. Um, like we, you know, our volunteers, we have 900 volunteers that haven't been present since COVID. So I think it got interrupted. Yeah. yeah, 900 volunteers is that's a huge disruption to what you and your staff are used to having supported. Oh, it, and you want to know what for them as well. A lot yeah. of them are like colleagues. You come into work. I've been seeing them for 20 something years. Yeah. And, um, and a lot of them are older and, um, and it's a big part of their life and they're not here. Yeah. A big part, a big part. COVID has had such an impact on things, huh? Yeah. Oof. Well, thank you so much for um, your time. Is there anything else you'd like to add about hospice? Oh, a, a, a great discussion. Excellent. Well, thank you again. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Dr. Chris Kerr, who joined me today on the Best Life, Best Death podcast. You can find out more about Dr. Kerr at drchristopherkerr.com. And please look out for his book, Death is But a Dream, Finding Hope and Meaning at Life's End, and his movie, Death is But a Dream, both powerful resources for learning more about his research into end-of-life experiences. I feel like these are so rich, and if more of us understood that this was a really normal part of coming to the end of life, we would know what to look for and pay attention to. Thanks again for joining the Best Life, Best Death podcast. Mm -hmm.